0: This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Transforming the Soul, this is Volume 1, translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem, and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is Lecture 6, entitled Asceticism and Illness, given in Berlin on the 11th of November, 1909. Human life swings back and forth between work and idleness. The particular way of life we are to discuss today, known as asceticism, is considered either to be work or to be idleness, according to the way you look at it. To study it objectively, without bias, as spiritual science demands, is impossible unless we consider whether what is called asceticism, in its highest sense excluding any misuse of it, influences human life and either helps it or harms it it is quite natural and actually justified that to begin with most people will at present have a fairly wrong idea of what the word asceticism is meant to convey. According to the Greek origin of the word, it would apply as well to an athlete as to an ascetic. In our time the word ascetic has taken on a specific coloring, coming from the form taken by this way of life during the Middle Ages. And for a lot of people, the word has the slant given it, for example, by Schopenhauer in the course of the 19th century. Today, the word is acquiring a certain shade of meaning by being influenced in all kinds of ways by Oriental philosophy and religion, particularly through what the West so often call Buddhism. Now, our task today will be to look in human nature for the true origin of asceticism, and spiritual science, as characterized in previous lectures, will be qualified to bring clarity to this discussion, the more so because its basic outlook is connected with the original meaning of the word Greek word ascesis. Spiritual science, spiritual research, as represented here for many years, rests on an absolutely definite foundation with regard to human nature. Spiritual science starts from the principle that at no stage of human evolution is it justified to establish a particular point marking the limits of human knowledge. The usual way of putting the question, what can human beings know and what can they not know, close quote, is, for spiritual science, misdirected. Spiritual science itself does not ask what human beings can know at a certain stage in their evolution, what the boundaries of knowledge are at that stage, what remains unknown because our human mental capacity is not up to it. None of these questions are its immediate concern, for spiritual science bases itself fairly and squarely on the fact of evolution, in particular the evolution of human soul forces. So, what it does say is that the human soul is capable of developing. Just as in the seed of a plant the future plant is asleep, until it is called forth, on the one hand, by forces within the seed, and on the other hand by forces that work on it from outside, similarly there are hidden slumbering forces and capacities constantly present in the human soul. And what at one particular stage of evolution, Human beings cannot yet understand. They will be able to know and understand when they have advanced a further stretch in developing those spiritual capacities which were previously hidden within them. Which are the forces that we can develop in ourselves for reaching a deeper understanding of the world and an ever wider horizon? This is the question spiritual science asks. It does not ask where the boundaries of our knowledge are, but how human beings can develop their capacities so as to get beyond the boundaries that exist at any given time. Instead of setting up a wall to restrict the horizon of our human knowledge, spiritual science is, both in method and in ideals, intent on widening the horizon ever further more and more examples of which will be given in the following lectures. Not through vague talk, but in a quite definite way, spiritual science shows how human beings can reach beyond the intellectual powers that have been given us through a process of evolution in which our own consciousness was not engaged. In the first instance, these faculties are concerned only with the world perceived by our senses and grasped by our reason. But by means of the forces latent in our soul, human beings are able to penetrate into those worlds which are at first not open to the senses, and which cannot be reached by our sense-bound powers of reason. So as to avoid the risk, right from the start, of being charged with vagueness, I will mention very briefly what you will find described in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds and Its Attainment, about the paths leading to higher knowledge. When we speak of passing beyond the ordinary bounds of knowledge, we must take care not to wander off into the blue, but rather find our way from the solid ground under our feet into a new world. How is it done? In normal human life today we have an alternation of the two conditions we call being awake and being asleep. Without going into details, we can say that for ordinary knowledge... The difference lies in this that while human beings are awake, their senses and sense bound intellect are under constant stimulus. It is by means of this stimulus that they acquire their knowledge of the external world, and during their waking hours, their attention is devoted to this external sense world. In sleep, we are removed from this world. Simple logical consideration could make anyone realize that it is not so absurd if spiritual science tells us that an actual part of the human being separates in sleep from what we otherwise call the physical human being. In the course of these lectures, we have already pointed out that according to our spiritual scientific conception, that part of human beings which can be seen and touched, the physical body, is only one of their members. A second member of the human being is the etheric or life body. When we are asleep, the physical and etheric bodies remain in bed. Apart from these members, we distinguish the consciousness body or, don't be put off by the terminology, the astral body, the bearer of pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, impulses, desires and passion, and in addition we have a fourth part one that makes the human being the crown of creation, the ego. These last two parts split off during sleep from the physical and etheric bodies. A simple consideration, as I said, can tell us that it is not so silly when spiritual science says that what we have in the way of pleasure or pain or as the ego's power of judgment cannot just vanish in the night and require to be recreated again every morning, but has to remain in existence. Think, if you like, of this withdrawal of the astral body and the ego merely as a picture, but you still cannot deny that they withdraw from what we call the physical and etheric bodies. Now the peculiar thing is that it is just these innermost parts of the human being, the astral body and the ego within, which we have, Excuse me, let me read that again. Now, the particular thing is that it it is just these innermost parts of the human being, the astral body and the ego, within which we have what we call our soul experiences, that sink down during sleep into an indeterminate darkness. But this means nothing else than that this innermost part of the human being needs the stimulus of the external world if it is to become conscious of itself and of the external world. So we can say that at the moment of falling asleep, when this stimulus ceases, human beings are powerless to maintain consciousness. But if in the normal course of life, human beings were able to stimulate the inner parts of their being and fill them with energy and inner life to such an extent that they could be conscious without the help of the outer world, either through sense impressions or through their sense-bound intellect, they would then be able to perceive other things than those that come to them through the stimulus of the senses. However strange or even paradoxical it may sound, if human beings could produce a condition which on the one hand resembles sleep and on the other hand is essentially different from it, they could arrive at supersensible knowledge. Their condition would be similar to sleep to the extent that they would not receive or depend on any external stimulus and dissimilar in that they would not sink into unconsciousness, but despite a lack of external stimulus unfold a vivid inner life. As spiritual scientific experience can show, human beings can indeed arrive at such a condition, a condition of clairvoyance, provided the world does not The word is not being misused, as often happens today. I will give you briefly one example of the numerous inner exercises by means of which this condition can be attained. If we wish to experience this condition safely, we must always start from the external world. The external world gives us mental images, and we call these true if we find that they correspond with external facts but this kind of truth cannot take us beyond the outer sense world. Our task, therefore, is to bridge the gulf between external sense perception and a perception that is independent of the senses and yet can offer us the truth. One of the first steps to acquiring this kind of knowledge is to practice picturing symbols. Let us take an example of a usable symbol, one that is usable where spiritual development is concerned, and presented in the form of a conversation between a teacher and a pupil studying spiritual science. In order to get his pupil to understand this symbolic picture, the teacher might say the following, quote, Think of plants, how they take root in the ground, and as they grow, send out green leaf after green leaf, until they reach the stages of blossom and fruit, close quote. We are not concerned yet with ordinary scientific ideas, for as we shall see, we are not discussing the difference between plants and human beings, but trying to get hold of useful symbolic images. The teacher might continue as follows. Now, think of human beings as we see them in life. They, no doubt, have advantages over plants. They can experience impulses, desires, emotions, and a mental life, that can lead them up the ladder from blind sensations and instinct to the highest moral ideals. Only scientific fantasizing could conclude that plants and human beings have a similar consciousness. But on a lower level, plants have certain advantages. Their growth is assured, and there is no possibility of going astray, while at any moment human beings can go astray from their right position in life. We are aware that in their whole makeup, human beings are full of instincts, desires, and passions which may bring them into error, lying, and delusions, whereas plants are essentially untouched by these things, and nature is pure and chaste. Not until human beings purify their whole life of instinct and desire can they hope to be as pure and incorrupt on a higher level as the plant is in its certainty and solidity on a lower level. Close quote. Then we can pass to a further picture. The plant contains green coloring matter, chlorophyll, that steeps the leaves in green color. Human beings possess the vehicle of passions and passion, their red blood. It is a kind of upward evolution, but at the same time human beings have had to take on board characteristics plants do not have. Human beings must, so to say, set their sights on the great ideal of one day attaining, on their own level, the inner certainty, the self-control and purity, a picture of which, at a lower level, we see in plants. So we can now ask ourselves, what do human beings have to do if they are meant to advance to that level? They have to become lord and master of their instincts. Desires and passions which surge about involuntarily within them. They have to grow beyond themselves, mortify in themselves all that otherwise dominates them, and raise to a higher level all that is under the sway of their lower nature. This is how human beings have developed beyond the plant. And all that has been added since the plant stage must be regarded as something to be conquered, or to keep the expression, to be killed or mortified, in order to bring forth from them greater life. This is the way our human future will proceed, and which Goethe described with these beautiful lines, "...whoever cannot say, die and renew thyself, on our dark earth will be a mournful guest." Or, if you want it in rhyme, "...if you haven't grasped in you this dying and rebirth, Then what a sorry soul are you, astray upon this earth! This does not mean that human beings must kill off their instincts, desires and passions, but that they purify them by the mastery they have over them. Then, looking at plants, they can say, There is something in me that is higher than the plant, but this I have to mortify and conquer. As a picture of what we have to overcome in ourselves, let us take that part of the plant which is no longer capable of life, the dry wood, and start by setting this up in the form of a cross. Then we have to set about cleansing and purifying our red blood, the vehicle of our instincts, impulses and cravings, so that it may become a chaste and purified expression of our higher being, of what Schiller meant when he spoke of the higher man in man. The blood will then be a of image of the pure chaste sap that flows through plants. Now, the teacher would say further, let us look at the flower in which the sap, rising continuously from stage to stage, from leaf to leaf, finally acquires the form and color of the blossom. The plant's sap pulses through the red rose without any trace of urges and desires But your urges and desires must become the expression of your purified ego being. And we complete the picture of the wood of the cross symbolizing what we have to overcome by adding a wreath of red roses to the cross. Then we have a picture, a symbol, that does not appeal solely to dry reason, but by calling on our whole life of feeling, presents us with an image of human life raising itself to the level of a higher ideal. Now someone can come along and say, quote, your idea is pure invention, with no truth in it. This picture you conjure up, the black cross with the red roses, is mere fancy, Close quote. Yes, undoubtedly this picture, looked at with the inner eye of anyone who wishes to ascend into spiritual worlds, is an invention. This is just what it has to be. This picture is not intended to portray something that can be recognized as existing in the external world. If this were its function, we would not need it. We would be satisfied with the impressions that come to us from outside for which we have only to supply the mental images. But the picture we create, though its elements are drawn from the external world, is put together according to certain feelings and ideas Belonging to our own inner being. The essential thing is that we should be fully conscious that we keep a firm hold on the course of the inner processes, otherwise, we would soon find ourselves fantasizing. Those working toward entering higher worlds through inner contemplation and meditation do not live only in abstract pictures but in a world of feelings and concepts that arise through constructing pictures such as these. These pictures awaken in them a number of inner soul processes, and by excluding every external stimulus, they concentrate all their powers on contemplating these pictures, which are not meant to portray external matters, but to awaken forces slumbering within them. If they are patient and Persevering, for although it takes a long time, yet it will happen, they will notice that calm devotion to pictures of this kind can give them something that has the power to grow. They will find that their inner life is changing, that a state of being does actually arise which is in some ways comparable to sleep, yet while sleep brings a submergence of reasoning power and soul life, the devotion I mentioned meditative contemplation will awaken inner forces. Very soon they feel a change going on in them. That inner life is arising as a result of their efforts, even though for the time being they have renounced having impressions from the outer world. So by way of these thoroughly unrealistic symbols, human beings awaken in themselves inner forces, and it will dawn on them that they can do something with them. Of course, people can object from another direction. Even if you have acquired these powers and really entered the spiritual world as you suppose, how can you be sure that what you perceive is reality? Nothing can prove this except experience, just as the external world can be proved to exist only by experience. Mere mental images can be quite distinctly distinguished from perceptions and the two categories will be confused only by someone who has lost touch with reality. Especially in philosophical circles, a certain misunderstanding has been gaining ground today. Schopenhauer, for instance, in the first part of his philosophy, starts from the assumption that the world in which human beings find themselves is a world existing only in their minds. The world is a concept they hold in their minds. Now, you can tell the difference between percept and idea, concept, with the help of your watch. As long as you are in contact with it, it is a percept. If you turn your back on it, you have a picture of the watch in your mind. That is the concept. In practical life, you will very soon learn to distinguish between percept and concept, or we would not know where we were. If you picture a red-hot iron, however hot it is, it will not burn you. But if you touch it, you will soon realize that a percept is quite different from a concept. It is the same with an example given by Kant. From a certain point of view, it is justified, but during the last century it has been the source of much error. Kant tried to turn a certain sacrosanct idea upside down by showing that there is no difference content-wise between the idea of a hundred thaler and a hundred real Thaler. However, it is wrong to maintain that there is no difference in content, for then it is only too easy to confuse a percept which gives us direct contact with the reality with the mere ideal content. Anyone who has to pay a debt of a hundred taller will certainly notice the difference between a hundred real and a hundred imagined taller. It is like this, too, with the spiritual world. When we waken the forces and faculties that are latent within us, and when around us is a world we have not known before, a world that shines out as though from dark spiritual depths, then someone uninitiated into this realm might well say that it could be auto-suggestion, some kind of illusion. But anyone who has actually had experiences on this level will be well able to distinguish reality from mere fantasy. Just as, on the physical level, we can distinguish between a mental image of a piece of hot steel and a real piece. So we see that it is possible to call forth a different state of consciousness. I have given you one brief example of how inner exercises can work on the faculties of the soul. Of course, while we are still practicing the exercises, we do not see a spiritual world we are entirely occupied in awakening our faculties. In some circumstances, this may last not merely for years, but for a whole life or lives. In the end, however, our efforts bring us to the point where we learn to apply these awakened forces of cognition in the spiritual world, just as we have learned to use our eyes, with the help of unknown spiritual powers for observing the external, visible world. This work on our own soul, these efforts preparing the soul for a world we have not yet reached, but to which we shall gain access by means of the faculties we are developing, and which will open to us by means of what we bring toward it, this path of training of our own soul can be called asceticism in the true sense of the word. For the Greek word... For it means working on oneself, making oneself capable of accomplishing some particular thing, transforming sleeping forces into active ones. This original meaning of the word can still be its meaning today, if we are not let astray by the wrong use of the term that has become the norm down the centuries. We shall understand the true meaning of asceticism as described here only if we bear in mind that the purpose of developing these faculties is to open up a new world. And we shall understand it best of all, if having applied the word asceticism to the spiritual world only, we now apply it to certain outer tasks in life. Just as the word asceticism is applied to the developing of spiritual faculties, we can also apply it in life when certain forces and faculties are being developed, but will only later on be applied directly where they belong. Strange as it may seem, there is an obvious example of where the true meaning of the word applies. It will also become clear to us how the incorrect use of the term can lead to harmful results. Using the term correctly in outer life, we can call the directing of military maneuvers asceticism and this is absolutely in keeping with the original Greek usage. The deployment and testing of military forces so that they will be ready for real combat when needed, this is asceticism. This is practicing so as to be prepared for action. While forces are not being used for their final purpose, but are being tested in advance for efficiency and caliber, that is asceticism. The directing of military maneuvers has the same relationship to real warfare as asceticism has to life in general. Human life, as I said earlier, swings between work and idleness. But there are various intermediate stages. For instance, play. Playing, when it really is playing, is the opposite of asceticism. And from its opposite one can see very well what asceticism is. Playing is an activity of energies in the outer world, resulting in immediate gratification. This gratification itself, the object of play, is not what we would call the unyielding substance of the external world where we do our work. No, what we are doing when we play is using our energies in a soft, malleable substance that responds to our efforts. Play is only play as long as we do not knock up against the resistance of outer forces as we do when working. Play is concerned directly with the energies that are changing into something else, and it is in the activating of these energies that makes play so gratifying. Playing does not prepare us for anything. It supplies its own satisfaction. It is just the opposite with asceticism, if understood in the proper sense. No aspect of the outer world supplies the gratification here. When we combine things in asceticism, even the cross and the red roses, the combination is not significant in itself, but only in as far as it calls our inner forces into activity, an activity which will find application only when the process is complete. Renunciation comes in because we work inwardly on ourselves, while knowing that at first we are not to be stimulated by the outer world. Our aim is to bring into activity our inner forces, so that they may be applied to the outer world later on. Thus play and asceticism can be shown to be opposites. How does asceticism, in our sense of the word, enter practically into human life? Let us remain in the realm where asceticism is practiced, both in a right and a wrong way that is, when endeavors are made, are being made, to ascend to supersensible spiritual worlds. If an avenue for information about the supersensible worlds opens up to someone, whether through reports given by another person or by way of historical documents, then possibly the first reaction might be, there are statements and communications concerning the supersensible worlds, but at present they are beyond my comprehension. I lack the power to understand them. Then again there are others who reject these communications and refuse to have anything to do with them. What is the reason for this? This happens in the first place because people of this kind reject asceticism in the best sense of the word. But the reason why they do this is because they cannot summon the strength of soul to draw forth higher forces in the way I have described they feel too weak to do so. I have repeatedly emphasized that it is not even necessary to be clairvoyant oneself to understand the findings of clairvoyant research. Clairvoyance is certainly necessary for the researching of spiritual facts, but once the facts have been communicated, anyone can use unprejudiced reason to understand them. Impartial reason and sound intellect are to start with the best instrument for judging anything communicated from the spiritual worlds. A true spiritual scientist will always say that if he could be afraid of anything, he would be afraid of people who accept communications of this kind without thoroughly testing them by means of reason. He is never afraid of those who make use of single-minded intelligence, for this is what makes all these communications comprehensible. However, some people may feel too weak to call forth in themselves the forces necessary for understanding communications from the spiritual world. In that case, they reject them out of a commensurate urge for self-preservation. They feel that to accept these communications would confuse them. Basically, in all cases of people rejecting what they hear through spiritual science, It is their urge for self-preservation that is driving them to it. They know that they are incapable of doing the exercises, that is, of promoting asceticism in the true sense. People prompted by the instinct for self-preservation tell themselves, If I were to let these things approach me, they would confuse me. My mind would be full of them, but I would be able to do nothing with them, therefore I reject them. So it is, with a materialistic outlook, which refuses to go a step beyond the scientific doctrines they assume to be founded on facts. But there are other possibilities, and here we come to a dangerous side of asceticism. People may have a sort of avidity for information about the spiritual world, while lacking the inner urge and commitment to test everything by reason and logic they may indulge a liking for sensationalism in this field. Then they are not held back by an instinct for self-preservation, but are driven on by its very opposite, a sort of urge for self-annihilation. For if people take something into their soul without understanding it, and with no wish to apply their reason to it, they will be swamped by it. This happens in all cases of blind faith or when communications from the spiritual world are accepted merely on authority. This kind of acceptance corresponds to an asceticism which arises not from a healthy instinct for self-preservation, but from a morbid impulse to annihilate the self, to drown in a flood of revelations. Where the soul is concerned, this has a significant shadow side, It is asceticism in a bad sense when someone gives up all effort and chooses to live in faith and in complete reliance on others. This attitude has existed in many forms, in many epochs. But we must not assume that everything which looks like blind faith is so. For example, we are told that in the old Pythagorean mystery schools there was a familiar phrase, quote, "...the Master has said," close quote. but this never meant, quote, "...the Master has said, therefore we believe it." For his students it meant something like this, quote, "...the Master has said it, therefore it presents us with a challenge to reflect on it and see how far we can get with it if we bring all our forces to bear on it." Close quote. In quotes, believing does not always imply a blind belief springing from a desire for self-annihilation. If you accept communications springing from spiritual research because you trust the researcher, it does not mean you have blind faith. You may have discovered that he is very serious about what he says, that his statements are in strictly logical form, and that in other realms where his utterances can be tested, He is logical and does not talk nonsense. On this verifiable ground, the student can hold the well-founded belief that the speaker, when he is talking about things not yet known to the student, has an equally sure basis for his statements. The student can therefore say, I will work at it. I have confidence in what I have been told, and this can be a guiding star for my endeavor to raise myself to the level of the faculties." which will enable me to understand myself when I have attained to them. If this healthy foundation of trust is lacking, and people allow themselves to be stirred by communications from the invisible worlds without understanding them, they will drift into a very wretched condition that can hardly be called asceticism. Whenever people accept something in blind faith, without resolving to work their way to an understanding of it, and if they therefore accept another person's will instead of their own, they will gradually lose those healthy soul forces that form the secure center of their inner being and supply the framework for a true feeling for what is right. Lies and a proneness to error will be the lot of people who are unwilling to test inwardly with their reason what they are told, but actually incline more to drowning themselves in it. Those who do not keep hold of a sound sense of truth will soon find how susceptible they are to lies and deception also in the real world. When approaching the spiritual world, we should consider very seriously that by succumbing to this sin of omission, we can very easily fall into a way of life in which we no longer have any real feeling for what is right and true. People who are serious about the need to practice in order to develop their faculties, and are not afraid of the effort involved, must not neglect to keep reminding themselves of what I have just been telling you. We can now penetrate more profoundly into what can, in a deeper sense, be called the ascetic training of the soul. So far, We have only been considering people who are not capable of really developing their inner forces in a sound way. On the one hand, a sound instinct for self-preservation makes people refuse to develop these forces because they do not want to develop them. On the other hand, people do not actually refuse to develop them but refuse to bring their judgment and intelligence to bear on them. In both cases, it is to do with people with a mania for remaining stuck at the level they are on. But let us suppose a case where a person really does try to develop these inner faculties and makes use of such forms of training as those described. Again, there may be a dual result. It may be the result we always aim for, where spiritual science is taken seriously and worthily. Students will then be guided to develop their inner forces only in so far as they are capable of using them in a right and proper way, here then we are concerned with how people have to work on themselves, as described in greater detail in my book titled "Knowledge of the Higher Worlds." Readers aside also known now as knowing the higher worlds, and readers aside, in order to awaken the faculties which will open the spiritual world to their inner sight but at the same time they must have access to the available results of spiritual research, to school their own faculties and establish a right balance between their work on themselves and what they should be understanding of the outer world. If people fail, really, to apply their inner faculties to understanding the outer world and give way to an almost uncontrollable urge to develop their soul forces and to bring about all possible movement in their soul in order to develop spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, and they are nevertheless too lazy to work slowly and sensibly with the available facts of spiritual research, then their asceticism may do them great harm. People can develop all sorts of faculties and powers and yet not know what to do with them or how to apply them to the outer world. This indeed is the outcome of many forms of training, especially those that develop knowledge without the opportunity to apply it, and also those forms of training that do not pursue energetically enough a practice of asceticism in a spiritual way, so that the students are continually becoming stronger and stronger. There are other methods with a different aim. This path may be described as more comfortable but it can easily lead to nonsense. It aims at doing away with the hindrances imposed by on the soul by the body in order to enhance the inner life. This was in fact the sole endeavor of medieval ascetics, and it survives in part today. Instead of true asceticism, which sets out to give the soul an ever richer content, False asceticism leaves the soul as it is and sets out to weaken the body and to reduce its effectiveness. There are indeed ways of damping down these forces so that the functioning of the body gradually weakens. And the result may then be that the soul, though remaining weak, gets the upper hand over the weakened bodily functions. A correct asceticism should leave the body as it is and the soul should gain the mastery over it. The other asceticism leaves the soul as it is, while all sorts of procedures, such as fasting, castigation, and so on, are used to weaken the body. The soul is then relatively the stronger, and can achieve a kind of consciousness, although its own powers have not increased. This was the attitude of many an ascetic, In the Middle Ages they killed off the vigor of the body, lowered its activities, left the soul as it was, and then lived in the expectation that the content of the spiritual world would be revealed to them with no contribution on their part. That is the easier method. But it really does not make the human being stronger. The true method requires people to cleanse and purify their thinking, feeling and willing so that these faculties will be strengthened and become master over the body. The other method undermines the body. Then the soul is supposed to wait without having acquired any new capacities until the divine world flows into it. You will find plenty of references to this method under the he- heading of asceticism in the Middle Ages. It leads to alienation from the world, and is bound to do so. For in the present stage of human evolution, there is a certain relationship between our capabilities of perception and what is outside us. And if we are to rise above this stage, we can do so only by heightening our capabilities and using them to understand the outer world in its deeper significance. But if we reduce our normal forces, we make ourselves incapable of maintaining a normal relationship with the outer world, and especially if we tone down our thinking, feeling, and willing, and give our soul over to passive expectation, something will then flow into us, which has no connection with our present-day world, makes us strangers there and useless for working in the world. While true asceticism makes us more and more capable in our dealings with the world, for we see more and more deeply into it, the other asceticism associated with the suppression of bodily functions draws people out of the world and makes them in every way into hermits. With their isolated outlook, on their psychological island, they may see all sort of psychic and spiritual images. This must not be denied. But an asceticism of this kind is of no use to the world. True asceticism is work, training for coping with the world, not a withdrawal into world remoteness. This does not imply that we have to go to the other extreme. One side can come to meet the other. Even though it is true in general that for our period in human evolution a certain normal relationship exists between the external world and the forces of the soul, yet every period tends to drive the normal to extremes, as it were. And if we want to develop higher faculties than the normal ones, we need pay no attention to opposition that comes from abnormal trends. And because we find opposition in ourselves we can under certain circumstances go rather further than would be necessary if the times were not also at fault. I say this because you have perhaps heard that many a member of the present spiritual scientific movement lays great stress on a certain diet. This does not at all imply that such a mode of life is required in order to attain or even only understand higher worlds and higher levels of life. It can be no more than an external aid, and should be seen only in relation to the fact that those wishing to gain understanding of spiritual worlds may find a certain obstacle in the customs and conventions they have to live with. Because these conventions have drawn us down too deeply into the material world, we must go beyond the normal in order to make the exercises easier but we would be mistaken to regard this as a kind of asceticism that can be a means of leading us to higher worlds. Vegetarianism will never lead anyone to higher worlds. It can be no more than a support for people who think to themselves, I wish to open for myself certain ways of understanding the spiritual worlds. I am hindered by the heaviness of my body, which prevents the exercises from having an immediate effect. Therefore, I will help myself by relieving my body of a certain amount of strain. Vegetarianism is one way of producing this result. It should never be accepted dogmatically, however, but just as something that can help a person to understand spiritual worlds more easily. But people must not think that they can develop spiritual powers on the strength of vegetarianism, for it leaves the soul as it is. And serves only to weaken the body if the soul is strengthened, however, it will be able, through the effect vegetarianism is having to strengthen the weakened body from the centre of its own forces, so that people who develop spiritually with the aid of vegetarianism will be stronger, more efficient, and more resistant to life. and will be not just a match for any meat-eater but we will be superior in working capacity. This is the very opposite of what is believed by many people when they say of vegetarians within a spiritual movement, poor chaps, they cannot even have the pleasure of eating a bit of meat. So long as people have this attitude to vegetarianism, it will not bring them the slightest benefit. So long as a desire for meat persists, vegetarianism is useless. It is helpful only when it leads to the following point of view that I will illustrate with a little story. Some time ago, someone was asked, Why don't you eat meat? He replied by asking them in return, Why don't you eat dogs and cats? To which the answer was, Oh, you can't eat those. Why ever not? I would find that disgusting. Well, that is just how I feel about any meat. This is the point. When you have stopped enjoying eating meat, then refraining from eating it is of some use with regard to the spiritual worlds. Until then, breaking the meat-eating habit can be helpful only in getting rid of the desire for meat. If the desire persists, it may be better to start eating meat again. For to go on tormenting yourself about it is certainly not the right way to reach an understanding of spiritual science. From all this you can clearly see the difference between true and false asceticism. False asceticism often attracts people whose sole desire is to develop the inner forces and faculties of soul, for it will not matter much to them whether they gain real knowledge of the outer world. Their aim is simply to develop their inner faculties and then to wait and see what comes of it. The best way to do this is to mortify the body as far as possible, for this weakens it, and the soul can then remain weak, yet still see into some kind of spiritual world, however incapable it may be of understanding the real spiritual world. This, however, is the path to deception. For directly people close off their means of return to the physical world. No true spiritual world comes to meet them, but only delusive pictures of their own self. And these are what they are bound to encounter, for they are leaving their soul as it is. Because their ego keeps to its accustomed standpoint, it does not attain to higher powers, and they put up a barrier between themselves and the world by suppressing the functions which relate them to the world. It is not only that this kind of asceticism alienates them from the world, but they can get into the habit of seeing pictures of their own soul distorted by its own imperfections instead of seeing a real spiritual world. There is a further consequence applying to the moral sphere. People who believe that humility and surrender to the spiritual world will set them on the right course fail to see that they are becoming entirely involved in their own selves and becoming egoists in the worst sense, for it means that they are content with themselves as they are and have no wish to progress any further. This kind of egoism, which can degenerate into unrestrained ambition and vanity, is the more dangerous because the victims of it cannot see it for themselves. They generally look on themselves as the most humble of people, whilst in reality they have the greatest opinion of themselves. A genuine humility would tell them what they fail to recognize, and then they would tell themselves, the forces for meeting the spiritual world are not to be had at the stage where I now am. They have still to be developed, and I must rise to them. I must not rest content with the forces I already have. So we see the results of a false asceticism, which relies primarily on killing off the bodily attributes instead of strengthening the inner ones. It conduces to deception, error, vanity, and egoism. In our time, especially, it would be the worst possible thing if this course were followed as a means of entering the spiritual world. It serves merely to engross people in themselves. Therefore people of today cannot model themselves on people of the past who sought access to spiritual worlds in solitude. Today the only true asceticism must be sought in modern spiritual science that is based firmly on reality. Through it people can develop forces and faculties and rise to a comprehension of a spiritual world which is itself a real world not one in which they wrap themselves up in themselves. This false asceticism has still other shadow sides. If you look at the realms of nature around you, leading up from the plants through animals to man, you will find the vital functions changing in character from stage to stage. Look at what we could call, in quotes, plant diseases, and you will find that they are of quite a different nature from illnesses in animals, let alone human beings. For diseases in plants always have an external cause, some abnormal conditions of wind and weather, light and sunshine. External circumstances can produce disease in plants. Moving up to animals, we find that they also, if left to themselves, have a far greater fund of natural health than human beings. Human beings may fall ill not only through the life they lead or through external circumstances, but also as a result of their inner life. If the soul is not well suited to the body, if the spiritual heritage they bring from earlier incarnations cannot adapt itself to the bodily constitution, these inner causes may bring about illnesses which are very often wrongly diagnosed. They can be symptoms of a maladjustment between soul and body. We often find that people with these symptoms are inclined to want to enter higher worlds by killing off their bodily forces, because the illness itself induces them to separate their soul from a body which the soul has not fully penetrated. In such people the body hardens in many ways, making its own forms, And as they have not strengthened their soul, but have used its weakness in order to escape from bodily impressions, and have thus withdrawn from their body the health giving, strengthening forces of their soul, the body then becomes susceptible to all sorts of ailments. While a true asceticism strengthens the soul, which then works back on the body and makes it resistant to illness from outside, A false asceticism makes people vulnerable to any illness that comes along. This is the dangerous connection between false asceticism and the illnesses of our time. And it is this that gives rise in wide circles where such things are easily misunderstood to all kinds of misconceptions about what effect a spiritual, scientific worldview has on those who adopt it. For people who endeavor to come to a sight of the spiritual world by way of a false asceticism are a fearful spectacle for people outside the movement. They are particularly prone to attack from harmful directions. For these people, far from being strengthened to resist the errors of our time, are well and truly exposed to them. Examples of this can be seen in many branches of theosophy today. Merely calling something theosophy does not give the adherents license to rank as the equal of other spiritual streams. If materialism prevails in the world, it is to some extent in tune with the concepts which are formed in observing the sense world. So we can say that the materialism which applies to the external world and knows nothing of a spiritual world, is in a certain sense justified. But in the case of an outlook which sets out to impart something about the spiritual world and takes into itself a caricature of the material prejudices of our day, because it is not founded on a real strengthening of spiritual forces, the result is much worse. A theosophical outlook permeated by contemporary errors, may in some circumstances be much more harmful than a materialistic outlook. And it should be said that thoroughly materialistic concepts have spread widely in theosophical circles. So, we hear the spiritual spoken of not as spirit, but as though the spirit were only an infinitely refined form of nebulous matter. When speaking of the etheric body, These people merely picture the physical, refined, beyond a certain point, and talk of etheric vibrations. On the astral level, these vibrations are still finer. On the mental level, they are finer still, and so on. It is always, in quotes, vibrations. Their level of understanding never reaches a real spiritual world, but remains stuck at concepts that ought to refer solely to the material world it can then happen that these people throw a materialistic haze over the most familiar of phenomena. If, for instance, we are at a social gathering where people are in harmony and one can feel there is a congenial mood and someone remarks on it, they may describe it in rather an ordinary way, but it is right and leads to a better understanding than if at a gathering of theosophists one of them were to say, Oh, what lovely vibrations there are here! To say that, one has to be a theosophical materialist with a pretty coarse-grained idea of matter into the bargain. For anyone with a feeling for such things, it is enough to spoil the mood to have those vibrations dancing around. We can see how the introduction of materialistic ideas into a spiritual outlook, produces a horrifying impression on outsiders, who might then say, These people talk about a spiritual world, but they are really no different from us. With us it is light waves that dance, with them it is spiritual waves. But it is all the same materialism. All this needs to be seen in its true light. Then we shall not get a wrong idea, of what the spiritual, scientific movement has to offer in our time. Then we shall see that asceticism, by strengthening the soul, can also be something that leads to the spiritual world, and by so doing brings new forces into our material existence. These are forces that make for health and not for illness. They supply our bodily organism with health-bringing life forces. Of course, it is not easy to determine how far a given outlook brings healthy or unhealthy forces with it, for the latter are evident, while healthy forces usually pass unnoticed. Close observation, however, will help us see how those who belong to a genuine spiritual movement are inspired by it and draw from it health-giving forces which work right down into the physical. It can also be observed that signs of illness appear only if something alien to a spiritual stream is introduced into it. Then the result can be worse than when the alien influence takes its course in the outer world, where people are shielded by conventions from misconceptions that have too extreme an effect. If we see things in this light, we shall understand asceticism to be a preparatory training for a higher life a way of developing our inner forces. And we shall then be taking the good old Greek word in its true sense. For askein means to make an effort, to make oneself strong. It even means to adorn oneself, so that the world can see what it means to be human. In its proper sense, asceticism means strengthening oneself, But if it leads people to leave the soul as it is and to endeavor to achieve something by weakening the body, they are separating the soul from the body and exposing the latter to all sorts of harmful influences so that asceticism becomes the source of all manner of ailments. The bright or shadow sides of egoism will emerge when we come to consider the nature of egoism itself. What we have discussed today will have shown you that genuine asceticism can never be an end in itself, but only a means of reaching a higher human goal, a of living one's way into higher worlds. Those wishing to associate themselves with this kind of asceticism must therefore keep themselves well-rooted in reality. They cannot allow themselves to become alienated from the world but must be aware of it at all times. Whatever they can bring back from higher worlds into this world must always be measured and assessed in relation to the work they do in this world. Otherwise, those who say that asceticism is not work but idleness could well be right. Idleness can easily give cause for false asceticism, especially in our time. But those people who keep a firm hold on themselves and keep the ground under their feet will regard asceticism as their highest ideal, where so serious a matter as our human faculties are concerned. Oh, our ideas can rise to a much higher level if we have an ideal picture before us for the training of our human faculties to work effectively in the world. Let us look at the way the Old Testament begins, where it says, quote, And God said, Let there be light, close quote. Day by day, God caused the physical sense world to arise from out of the spiritual world. And at the end of each day, when he looked at the physical world he had created out of the spiritual one, he felt satisfied and was able to say, It is good, quote, And God saw that it was good, close quote. Similarly, beginning from where we are, which is standing on the firm ground of reality, and maintaining our sound thinking, our confident character and our unerring feelings, we have to ascend into the spiritual world and discover there the facts out of which the entire physical world arose. Yet we must ensure that when... Equipped with what we have researched and come to know in spiritual realms, we bring back the forces we have acquired and apply them in the physical world and see how well suited to it they are, that we are able to say. The way the forces we have developed spiritually fit into the surrounding world is showing us that this is good. If we test the forces we have acquired through true asceticism, by putting them to work in the world, then we have the right to say, yes, they are good. The end of Lecture 6